Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. To be a father is more than just to have a child. No, it also requires that you put someone else before yourself at all times and do everything you can do to help them become the best person they possibly can. It's a full-time role and one that lasts for a lifetime. Sadly, though, it's not one that all fathers are fit to fill. What happens when a father doesn't just fail to raise his children, but he actively hurts them with his irresponsible attitude? And what happens when that attitude directly leads to the death of six of his offspring? It's something we're about to find out. This is Monsters. To understand the actions of Mick Philpot is to untangle a very complex psychology, that of a man who, with his unconventional lifestyle choices, was always going to be a figure of derision for some. But while for most people, living an unconventional life doesn't necessarily hurt anyone around them, when you add a whole host of personality disorders into the mix, it created a lethal cocktail in this case. Michael Philpot, who went by Mick, was born December of 1956 into a working-class family in Derbyshire, England. During his earliest years, he seemed to be a normal kid in all outside appearances, one who, by the time his late teens came around, was training to serve in the army. At some point, it became apparent there was a far darker side to the youngster layered on top of that. Basically, he appeared to be suffering from the dark triad, a concept in psychology where a person has a combination of traits that, while they aren't always dangerous in isolation, can be pretty destructive when brought together. These traits consist of a healthy and equal dose of psychopathy, narcissism, and Machiavellianism. It should be clear how that helped to make Mick Philpot the man he would become. It should also be clear why he was more dangerous than others suffering for one or even two of those traits. After all, psychopathy and narcissism aren't actually as uncommon as someone might think. In fact, the likelihood is that we've all met more than a few people who fit those categories in our lives. Really, all the former means is someone who suffers from a lack of empathy, and in the latter, it's mostly someone who has an inflated sense of self-importance. So when you think about it that way, it's easy to realize psychopaths and narcissists are everywhere. Particularly in high-level corporate roles, as these mentalities often help them to succeed in the world of business. Of course, this doesn't mean they're dangerous people, though. No, most psychopaths or narcissists are harmless, at least in the sense of being a physical danger to those around them. The problem comes, however, when these two disorders are layered on top of one another and a diagnosis of Machiavellianism is added to the mix. That's a personality trait that denotes cunningness, the ability to be manipulative, and a drive to use whatever means necessary to gain power. 
with no empathy, a superiority complex, and an increased ability to manipulate others, the ingredients are all there for disaster to take hold. Those suffering from the Dark Triad are statistically far more likely to engage in dangerous behavior, be highly impulsive, and do so with little regard for their fellow men and women. In the case of Mick Philpott specifically, this manifested itself mostly in his attitude towards women, with him often being described by those who knew him as controlling, domineering, and even outright violent towards his romantic partners. In fact, by the time he reached 21 years old in the summer of 1978, he had already attempted to murder his then-girlfriend Kim Hill after she threatened to leave him over his manipulative behavior. After her threat, on July 24th of that year, Mick broke into her home and stabbed her over 27 times while she was lying in bed. He left her with collapsed lungs, as well as a punctured bladder, kidneys, and liver. When Kim's mother, who was in the house at the time, heard the commotion and attempted to intervene, she ended up getting stabbed 11 times for her efforts. When the paramedics showed up on the scene soon after, they had a difficult task ahead of them in saving the two women's lives. But true to his nature, Mick was apparently well aware of that and even took great pleasure in it. When they arrived on the scene, he reportedly said of his partner, quote, I wouldn't bother. She's a goner. I've done a good job on her. For as horrifying as that was, both women would survive the incident and Mick would be charged with attempted murder and grievous bodily harm as a result. He was sentenced to seven and a half years behind bars. Of course, it could be argued that he got off light though as it wasn't the first incidence of violence towards his partner. Prior to the stabbing of Kim and her mother, he had also shot her in the groin with a crossbow after he deemed the dress she was wearing to be too short. On another occasion, he cracked her kneecap with a hammer because she was paying attention to an infant she was babysitting and not him. More than anything, though, it was the fear she was cheating on him that seemed to drive much of the abuse. Whenever he'd return from a military posting, he'd immediately begin accusing Kim of having affairs behind his back. Even when she denied them, he refused to believe she was telling him the truth, with it resulting in even more violence. It wasn't as if acts of violence were kept secret from their friend circle either. No, during one notable incident at a busy bar, Mick took to smacking his partner across the mouth with a pool cue and bursting her lip open, all while everyone else in the room sat and did nothing. Why wouldn't they help a woman in need? Well, it was well known amongst the locals that Mick was not a man to be messed with. That was because if you did try anything with him, his vengeance would be fast and intense. Clearly then, he wasn't someone who had a stable and healthy view on how to act when it came to not getting what he felt he deserved. And it didn't seem he had any understanding that anything he was doing was wrong either as, while in prison for the stabbing incident, he continued to write to Kim, telling her all about his plans to marry her once he was released. Of course, Kim had no intention of getting back together with the man who had almost killed her, and she was glad that he was behind bars. Despite that, after just three years and two months of his sentence, he was released as they felt he was no longer a danger to the community. Of course, someone willing to stab two women a collective 38 times had surely learned his lesson. Except that he hadn't, as would become apparent when he met and subsequently married Pamela Lomax in 1986. Sure, there may have been some degree of harmony in their relationship at first, enough to where they were able to have three children together, but like any good abuser, slowly Mick's real side began to present itself. 
It wasn't long before his new bride was complaining about his controlling behavior. That behavior would become such an issue for her, in fact, she began to hope and pray he'd leave her for someone else. A wish that would soon be fulfilled because soon he met Heather Kehoe and fell in love with her. The biggest problem, outside of the fact that Mick was already married, was that Heather was 16 and he was 37. Sure, the age of consent in the UK is 16, but it's been reported that the two actually met when Heather was only 14 years old. Really though, in a way it makes sense he'd go for a younger woman as they'd likely be easier to manipulate. And manipulate he did because, once the two ran away together, it wasn't long before Heather was feeling the brunt of her partner's fury. In her case, this first presented itself after she'd been unable to give him a daughter. Yes, despite the two having two sons together, and despite Mick already having two sons and a daughter from a previous wife, that clearly wasn't enough. So when it became apparent to him that his younger partner wasn't giving him the girl he felt he deserved, he took to beating and sexually abusing her. As if that wasn't bad enough, he also taught their two sons to also beat her if they felt she was getting out of line. Now, obviously, there was only so much of that Heather was going to be able to take before she reached her breaking point, and that very breaking point came soon after. When she couldn't convince her children to see what a monster their father was, she was forced to flee the household without them. She would eventually win full custody of her children and from there begin the process of de-brainwashing them, but that only came after a lengthy and costly court battle had ensued. Even this wouldn't be the end of her torment, though, as, for years after, Mick continued to level allegations against her both in public and within their social circles, causing her problems that still persist to this day. Luckily, though, she wouldn't have to deal with any more of his physical abuse, at least as by that point the increasingly violent and erratic father of her children had moved on to new targets. When there wasn't a romantic partner immediately available to abuse, he would simply go after work colleagues instead. Such was the case when he headbutted a co-worker in 1991 and, as a result, was sentenced to a two-year conditional discharge. With that in mind, it's difficult to imagine why anyone would want to be around Mick Philpott at this point. But if there's one thing abusers excel at, but if there's one thing abusers excel at, it's finding potential victims who are more susceptible to falling into their web of control. That's exactly what happened when, in 2000, he met and began dating Mairead Duffy, a 19-year-old single mother who had previously fled from a volatile relationship with the father of her children. Sadly, she was unable to break away from the pattern of getting involved with violent men, and rather than get as far away from Mick as possible once she was introduced to him, she was so enamored with him that it wasn't long before she was referring to Mick as her guardian angel. And with that, the two would soon be living together at his home in Darby, with them bringing her son along for the ride. For as much as Mairead appeared to worship Mick, even she would be somewhat troubled by his decision to start seeing a second woman on the side only a year after their relationship had begun. That's right, in 2001, Mick met 16-year-old Lisa Willis, another single mother in the area who had grown up as an orphan and as a result had no parental figures in her life. So perhaps in this older man, she was able to kill two birds with one stone by finding both a lover and a father figure at the same time. Gross. 
Whatever their dynamic was, there was clearly no attempt from the convicted abuser to hide this situation from his other partner. No, he was quite open about the fact he was seeing two women simultaneously. By 2002, Lisa had been invited to move into Mick and Maraid's three-bedroom semi-detached home at 18 Victoria Terrace, Allentown, Derby. Could this be considered a hypocritical stance to take for a man who'd previously beaten partners to within an inch of their lives over alleged infidelity? Uh, yeah. But Mick didn't seem to recognize that. After all, it was what he wanted, so it shouldn't matter how others felt about it. If Moraid had a problem with his choice, then so be it. She'd just have to accept the reality of facing his wrath if she dared speak up about the matter. Perhaps that's why she chose not to say anything at all and instead allowed the situation to turn into a polyandrous one. And just to be clear, what consenting adults do in their personal and romantic relationships is their own business. As long as everyone is on board with the idea, I don't think there's anything wrong with people sharing multiple partners. You do you. That said, in this particular situation, there was obviously a power dynamic at play that called into question just how happy the two other women involved were. After all, they were both significantly younger than he was, on the border of still being children, and it wasn't as if they were allowed to seek out other partners of their own should they want to. It's equally as possible that as things progressed, they came to like the arrangement because during Mick and Maraid's wedding in May of 2003, Lisa served as a bridesmaid. That's complete speculation, though, and it was clear to everyone that Mick was the one who ran the household. It was also well known that he did so with an iron fist. When at one point, he came to the irrational belief Lisa's brother-in-law was the father of her child, he took to physically beating her in order to get her to confess to it being true. But there was nothing to confess to, so, unable to give him the answer he wanted, Lisa was forced to endure his abuse while Maraid watched, powerless to stop what was happening. After all, she didn't want to risk upsetting him herself and end up getting assaulted as well. No, in order to ensure the safety of herself and her children, it was better to stay quiet as much as possible. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. That attitude soon became the norm in the Philpot house, not just for Maraid and Lisa, but also for the 11 children they had between them. That's right. Mick had been a busy man as over the previous decade, he'd fathered nine children between his wife and his girlfriend. Five of them were Maraids, and the other four being boys and girls he conceived with his mistress, Lisa. Not that any of them seemed to mean anything to him, of course. No, he took little interest in what they did or what they needed. As far as he was concerned, when it came to feeding them, clothing them, or making sure they attended school, well, that was woman's work. As to the five children he'd fathered before he met Maraid, Mick had no contact with them at all anymore, so he didn't need to worry about anything going on there. No, all he really saw his offspring as was an empire, one that he could use to manipulate the system to his own ends. How would he do that? Well, despite his two partners both working, 
Mick claimed as much as he possibly could in benefits from the government, all while refusing to do any work himself. What made that even worse was that all of the income in the household, whether it came from state welfare or employment earnings, went directly into his bank account. So, if anyone living there wanted anything, they had to go through him. Something that only increased his control over the proceedings. And he currently had plenty to hold over his family as, through a combination of both streams of income, his annual income was in excess of £60,000 per year closer to $75,000 American. With such an obscene amount of money coming in for a man who'd done nothing to earn it, it's no surprise his story soon became a tabloid sensation in the UK. In fact, by 2006, many newspapers were openly criticizing him after it came to light he had requested he and his family be moved to a larger city council-owned house at the expense of the taxpayers. This negative public profile wasn't helped much when the story of his 1978 conviction for attempted murder also resurfaced soon after, with many at that point questioning whether he was even fit to raise his kids. As far as his detractors saw it, he was clearly a dangerous man and one who had little interest in his children other than what they could do for him. In that sense, then, he was a true sociopath and could never truly understand the consequences of any of his actions. But luckily for Mick, British television had a place for folks like that in the mid-2000s, and it was on the human circus that was The Jeremy Kyle Show. That was basically a UK equivalent to more well-known sensationalized 90s talk shows such as The Jerry Springer Show. It was there, on a spring 2007 edition, one that was tastefully named Father to Fifteen, Wife and Girlfriend, Pregnant Again, that he pled his case to the British public about why he deserved a bigger house for his family. Unfortunately, though, this attempt to rehabilitate his public image did not go down so well. That was because, outside of spending much of the episode bragging about how much money he was bringing in, then talking about his desire to divorce his wife so he could marry his girlfriend, he was unable to justify why he should be subsidized by the public when he refused to work himself. Still, even if the interview had been a disaster in terms of getting him what he wanted, Shameless Mick, as he had then become known in the media, felt like he was now a full-blown celebrity as a result. With this only feeding his narcissism that much more, he started making plans to monetize the situation further, with him at one point planning to get a vasectomy and selling the rights to film the operation to the highest bidder. As he allegedly put it at that point, quote, Mick Philpott's seed is too good to waste, so there was no way such a procedure could be carried out without him getting some financial gain. When he wasn't planning out how he could make extra cash from a vasectomy, he was continuing to do the media circuit all around the country, whether that be via tabloid newspaper interviews or further television appearances such as the time he appeared on an episode of the ITV documentary series and Whittacombe Verses. It was a show that featured the former British MP and various persons using the benefits system. That appearance ended up backfiring on him again as it proved to be even more damaging than his showing on Jeremy Kyle. That was largely because, rather than dealing with a daytime shock jock, Mick was instead placed head-to-head -head with a prominent conservative member of parliament, 
someone who understood the benefits system and who, with her right-wing leanings, was far less understanding of his supposed plight than others may have been. With that in mind, it should go without saying the interview got downright competitive at points. Early on during her time staying in his household, in fact, Anne lambasted Mick for not only taking no interest in his kids' lives, but also for refusing to get a job, even after she'd been able to find three separate employers who were willing to hire him. One of the companies, a barrel-making firm, had even flat-out hired him on the MP's recommendation. But when he didn't show up to his first day of work, the tensions between the two parties only increased to the point that Mick openly referred to the host as an interfering bitch, someone who shouldn't be getting involved in his business. So why go on the show then? Of course, that kind of behavior was par for the course with Mick, as by then both his wife and his mistress were used to being called bitches whenever they did something that upset him. With his problems with women not having gotten any better over the years, Mick had been able to reduce them to little more than objects in his own mind. With him now choosing to largely live in a caravan outside of his home and simply deal with his sexual urges by inviting over whichever partner he wanted to sleep with that night. The physical abuse they suffered would only continue to get worse too because in 2010, police were forced to give him a formal caution when he was reported for dragging Maraid out of the house by her hair and then slapping her during an argument. Following that, in 2011, his wife became pregnant by another man during a dogging session he'd arranged. That was a practice in which people met up in semi-public places for group sex. Mick forced Maraid to get an abortion as he couldn't bear the thought of another man having a child with her. But it wasn't just his lovers who were feeling the brunt of his rage at that point. Later that same year, in November of 2011, Mick punched another driver during a road rage incident, with that leading to him being convicted of common assault and awarded bail while he was awaiting trial. It was clear things were getting worse than ever in terms of his stability and temperament, but the worst was yet to come because, in February of 2012, when Lisa finally decided she'd had enough and fled the house with her children in tow, something broke inside of her now former partner. It really shouldn't be surprising though because for him, this represented something he wasn't used to, a loss of control over the situation. After all, the woman who for so long had been under his thumb was now taking some agency over her life, and that was simply not acceptable as far as he was concerned. So in an attempt to convince her to come back, Mick first tried sweet-talking Lisa. Then, when that didn't work, he resorted to outright bullying, threatening her with violence should she not come to her senses. But still, even with all that being levied against her, she refused to return to the house as she felt it was now at a point where it wasn't just damaging to her. It was also affecting her children. Obviously, for any normal man, accepting defeat would be the only course of action at that point. But Mick Philpot was no normal man. No, unable to let the situation go as it represented a failure of his ability to dominate people, he began devising a plan, one so horrific it would soon lead to him being imprisoned for what may possibly be the remainder of his life. Basically, it started when, now feeling the need to get revenge on Lisa and also get custody of their children back in the process, he confided in Maraid an idea he'd come up with which he believed would kill two birds with one stone. 
the way he saw it, if the two were to force a custody hearing over the children in court, then set a fire in the house and blame Lisa for starting it, she'd lose access to her kids and be forced to return home if she ever wanted to see them again. Now, immediately, it should be obvious to anyone why this plan was flawed as it implied Lisa would willingly re-enter the situation after such a horrendous act. On top of that, it also implied Mick and Maraid were smart enough to make it look like she'd set the fire to the house when there was really no motive for her to do so. Still, with his only thought at the time being that he had to get what he wanted, Mick pushed his wife into agreeing to the plan. Something she eventually did, but only under duress as she feared her marriage would be over if she didn't. That's right, even at this point, Mick's wife was so blindly in love with him that she was willing to put her own kids' lives at risk in order to keep him happy. But while this would prove to be a poor decision in the end, it didn't stop her at the time. So after bringing a third party on board, Mick's best friend, Paul Mosley, they set about seeding stories amongst friends and acquaintances about threats Lisa had been making against them. When Lisa heard about the rumors and called her now former lover up in an angry and aggressive manner, Mick was able to gleefully take recordings of those calls to the authorities and managed to get a custody meeting set up for May 11, 2012. With everything now in place, the evening before the hearing, Mick and Maraid began executing the final step of their plan. How would it play out? Well, after putting their six kids, Jade, John, Jack, Jesse, Jaden, and Duane to bed, they welcomed Paul Mosley back into the house and the three of them began drinking heavily. At some point after midnight, they engaged in a threesome together, all before around 3 a.m. on the morning of the 11th. That was when they started pouring gasoline all over the floor of the house. Once that was done, aware enough to try to get rid of the evidence, Paul removed the gas containers from the property, allowing Mick the chance to set the place alight, something he did at around 3.30 a.m. in the hallway at the bottom of the stairs. After that, the fire spread quickly and with the epicenter being at the staircase, it meant the children sleeping on the second floor had no means of escape. So, with the gravity of the situation now dawning on them, the three ran outside into a neighbor's yard where Maraid called emergency services begging for help. As she explained to them, a fire had started while they were asleep and, while she and her husband had been able to get outside, their children were trapped upstairs. Of course, even if Maraid was panicking now, suddenly realizing her children's lives were at stake, Mick stuck to the plan, telling neighbors who'd been woken up by the blaze that he thought Lisa Willis had started the fire. Not that he seemed to care about the kids trapped inside, though, and it's this very emotionless attitude towards them which first raised the suspicions of those in attendance at the time. As James Butler, one of the people on the scene, described it after the fact, quote, there was no emotion. If he would have grabbed hold of me and said, please come on, let's get in there, my kids are in there, I know that would have been a true man as a father. Unfortunately though, with the smoke and the flames now reaching a point where they were too thick to get past, accessing the second floor bedroom window by means of ladder proved impossible. When firefighters arrived on the scene soon after, they immediately recognized the severity of the situation as well. Still, they worked to get the children out of the house anyway, and in the end, this led to a small miracle as the oldest of the children, 13-year-old Duane, was pulled out, still alive though badly injured. 
As for the rest of them, however, they weren't so lucky. The other five children, each of them between the ages of five and ten years old, would die on the scene. Even that wouldn't be the end of the tragedy, though, as, despite surviving the fire, just two days later while in the hospital, Duane would pass away as well. His injuries were just too severe for him to carry on any longer. With the community immediately going into grief mode, a memorial service was held in the days that followed. After which, on May 16th, Mick and Maraid held a press conference where they continued to push the idea that the fire had nothing to do with them. And despite the public perception around Mick prior to that, the general consensus was that even he wouldn't have gone as far as to have any involvement in such an act. In order to ease his pain, a fund was set up which managed to raise over 11,000 pounds or over 13,000 US dollars in order to pay for the funerals. Funerals which eventually took place on June 22nd. By the time that day came, neither Mick nor Maraid would be able to attend as they would already be in custody. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. It hadn't taken long for investigators to start piecing together what really happened on that night. Not just because of the suspicious circumstances around how the fire started, but also because of the seemingly lack of concern Mick had shown. This wasn't just limited to what his neighbors noticed either because, after the children's bodies were taken to the mortuary and the parents were asked to go down and identify them, he appeared to show no signs of distress at all. Sure, grief can cause people to react in strange ways and this in itself isn't necessarily a sign of his guilt, but when compounded with everything else, including the fact that, as Duane lay on life support in a hospital bed, Mick frequently left his side to have a food fight with his wife or to go and hit on other women, it left authorities wondering about what was really going on. On top of that, the press conference held by the two following the deaths of their children raised some alarms amongst body language experts. As Dr. Cliff Lansley would put it in reference to the footage, quote, The expression we're seeing on both of their faces is not genuine sadness. He's brought his brows together, he looks like he's in pain or he's constipated or something. Despite Lisa already having been arrested by them after evidence of gasoline was found on the premises of the fire, implicating her in an arson attack, the investigation began to shift gears and suspect more and more that the whole thing had been an inside job. To make matters worse, that opinion was also beginning to be shared by the general public after a number of stories came to light that much of the money raised for the funerals was spent by Mick and Maraid on shopping sprees and high-end clothing stores. Ultimately, this gave the police all the cause they needed to bug the hotel room where the couple were staying in the hopes they would accidentally give themselves away. And give themselves away they did, because just a couple of days later, Mick could be heard on the recording telling Maraid to stick to their story. Sure, it wasn't an outright admission that they started the fire, but it was enough to prove they knew more than they were letting on. 
so on May 28th, after Lisa was released without charges, the Philpots were both arrested on suspicion of murder. Then, just two days after that, following further questioning with the couple and additional evidence gathering, they were at last formally charged with causing the deaths of their children. After discovering not only gasoline containers, but discarded clothing belonging to Mick, Maraid, and Paul Mosley close to the house, police were able to piece together exactly what had happened. This led to Paul also being charged with murder a few months later on November 5th, a charge that was later downgraded to manslaughter. Of course, he wouldn't be the only one whose charge was downgraded, though. No, the Philpots would also manage to successfully get theirs changed to manslaughter as well on account of there not being any evidence they'd planned for the kids to die in the fire. Sure, it now looked like they had started the blaze, and it appeared their inability to allow the children a clear path out of the house had directly led to their deaths, but regardless, there was no motive for them to want them dead. If anything, they seemed to want the opposite, and that was all of the family back together under one roof. Even if this was the case, though, six children were dead regardless, and whether the charge was manslaughter or outright murder, prison time seemed assured for the trio. Even Maraid, who had first claimed to be an innocent party, someone only going along with the plan out of fear of repercussions should she have not, was quickly shown to be not so forthcoming with the truth. After all, whether she was initially happy about the plan or not, she had willingly gone along with it, and after the children were dead, she seemed to show little signs of grief, with her main concern being all about the money they were getting for the funeral. As Dr. Carrie Nixon, a forensic psychologist involved in the trial, put it, quote, Any mother would recoil in horror at the idea of lighting a fire beneath where your children are sleeping. I have never come across such selfish disregard for their children. Moraid doesn't protect her children. In fact, she actually puts them in harm, and that's unforgivable. The jury apparently agreed with this assessment because, on April 2nd, 2013, at Nottingham Crown Court, not only were Mick Philpott and Paul Mosley found guilty of manslaughter, but so was Moraid. Given the evidence presented by the prosecution, there was no way any other decision could be reached. As the judge appointed to the case put it, what the three had concocted together was, quote, a wicked and dangerous plan outside the comprehension of any right-thinking person. That said, for as much blame as he put on both Paul and Maraid, special focus was given to the ringleader, Mick. With his history of abuse towards others being a key element in judging both his character and his danger towards the public going forward, the judge would tell Mick, quote, You controlled and manipulated those women as you had controlled and manipulated their predecessors. You bark orders and they obey. Witness after witness described the dynamics in your household. You were the kingpin. No one else mattered. When it came to his claims that the deaths of his children had been accidental and that, because of that, he shouldn't be convicted, the judge stated, quote, What you did intend, plainly, was to subject your children to a terrifying ordeal. They were to be awoken from their beds in the middle of the night with their home on fire so you could rescue them and be the hero. Their terror was the price they were going to pay for your callous selfishness. Clearly then, there was no sympathy to be had for shameless Mick. 
And it wasn't just the judge who was happy to give him a piece of his mind, as, with the story being so public now, members of the local community appeared at the gallery as he was being led away and shouted out, quote, Die, Mick, die. The only question left was what sentence each of the three would get, and would Mick get a worse sentence than the others on account of him being the man most responsible. On April 3rd, 2013, Mick Philpot was sentenced to life in prison with a minimum of 15 years to be served before parole could be considered. Meanwhile, both Mairead Philpot and Paul Mosley, for their slightly lesser role in the crime, would be sentenced to 17 years apiece, with neither of them being eligible for release until at least half of that had been served. Of course, Mairead would continue to protest her guilt as she claimed any decision she made during that time was done under duress. That was why, later that same year on November 29th, she appealed the court's decision, though the appeal was ultimately dismissed. This wouldn't be the end of the story, though. With all three killers now behind bars, a conversation could begin amongst the UK populace about the state of welfare dependency in the country. This led to such high-level politicians as Chancellor George Osborne getting involved in claiming that in the future, the welfare state should not be subsidizing such people as the Philpots. Of course, this quickly turned into something of a witch hunt against the working classes in general as the conservative media took the whole thing as an opportunity to lambast the very idea of a welfare state, even for those genuinely in need. At that point, any real discussions got lost amongst the mudslinging on either side. Like with so many other political or social debates, it all got too partisan for the people to communicate clearly. Not that Mick Philpot had any issue with that, however. No, it didn't matter how toxic the debate had gotten, as long as he was at the center of it, he was happy to have the publicity. Even if he was now approaching his 60s and most believed he'd be spending the rest of his life behind bars, he still felt like he was the one who had been unfairly treated. That was why he started a campaign to get released while the public's attention was still on him. As he stated in a letter written to a pen pal around that time, quote, I can't believe I'm still here. I'm completely innocent. God, my babies. Why not me? They never hurt anybody. They gave me so much love, joy, happiness, and laughter. Yep, like any true narcissist, Shameless Mick was completely unable to accept any responsibility for his actions. And as far as he saw it, it was only a matter of time before he was a free man once more and allowed to be reunited with his wife. But if he really truly believed that, he was very wrong and not only was there zero hope his sentence would be commuted, but there was also further trouble set to come his way. Soon after his stint behind bars began, he was interviewed by the police in relation to accusations of rape made against him. While the investigation into the arson had been going on, several witnesses had divulged information which implicated Mick in a number of sexual assaults that took place over the years, with one of them dating as far back as 1996. In the end, despite his history making it highly possible, if not outright likely, he did in fact commit these rapes, there was not enough evidence to convict him and the case was eventually dropped. He would remain behind bars anyway, though, much to the delight of his now-estranged sister, Charmaine, who had no further contact with him after his incarceration. Even now, locked up without the support of his remaining family, Mick was still able to game the system to the point where he was able to get new teeth made for him, 
all at the UK taxpayer's expense, of course. As for the other two people involved in the murder of six children, things would end up working out okay for them in the long run, as in November of 2020, after serving only eight years of her sentence, Mairead Philpot was released on account of good behavior. Not that many people believed she should have been released, though. As research director for the Center for Crime Prevention, David Spence would put it, quote, the system of automatically releasing criminals like her halfway through their sentence means that in cases like this, justice has not been done. This needs to change. For crimes like these, those convicted need to serve their full sentence. Hell, even her own mother would later go on record as to say that, on account of the unforgivable nature of her crimes, she should have stayed in prison for longer. But there was little she or the rest of the public could do to change that now. All that could be done instead was to fight to make sure Maraid wasn't allowed to return to the area she'd lived previously, as the locals no longer felt safe with her being there. Understandably. The residents felt so strong about it that the local conservative MP for Mid-Derbyshire was compelled to take up the cause personally when, in a public statement made not long after Maraid's release, she stated, allowing such an early release was a disgrace to the memories of the children who died, and that she would do everything in her power to make sure Maraid was not able to return to Darby. Just one year later, in May of 2021, Paul Mosley was released from prison as well. Thankfully, though, in his case, his freedom would prove to be short-lived as two months later, on July 10th, he was caught violating the terms of his parole conditions and was sent right back behind bars. Even this many years removed, the effects of these crimes and others are still being felt, not just amongst the local community where it happened, but also in the previous victims of Mick Philpot. After all, let's not forget that being responsible for the death of six of his children was only his final and most severe crime. Before that, there was still a long history of abuse, both physical and emotional, which shouldn't be forgotten. For his first known victim, Kim Hill, the after-effects of that abuse continued to linger. Following her own attempted murder, she'd be forced to have a hysterectomy. One of the knife wounds inflicted upon her by her former partner led to a prolapsed womb, with that meaning she would never be able to have children of her own. That's a key fact to remember in this case because, while it's important to never forget the kids who died, Jade, John, Jack, Jesse, Jaden, and Duane, it's equally as important to remember the others often forgotten victims of this monster. Even Kim Hill's mother Shirley, who was later diagnosed with terminal cancer of the liver, would blame that cancer on the scarring inflicted upon her organs when Mick stabbed her. Because of that, she took to labeling herself his final victim and proof that after all of these years, even with him now being safely behind bars, his reign of terror continues to live on. What can be taken from the case of Mick Philpot? On one hand, it's about the evils of one man and the dangers of letting narcissism be given free reign. It's about the cult of personality and fear, and how it can cause others to get caught up in its web and be led down a dark path. Aside from that, it's also a story about having to take ownership of your actions. After all, while there may have been some level of duress behind Maraid's actions to take part in the fire on that fateful night, this in no way absolves her of blame. She's just as culpable in many ways, especially as the victims were her own children. 
Finally, it's a story about the complex way class is treated in the UK. Something that can be seen both in the vilifying manner the media often treat those on welfare, and also in the way real-life villains can abuse that very welfare system in order to meet their own ends. Monsters like McPhilpot will always be there, either hiding in the shadows or in plain sight, and with their ability to manipulate, they'll continue to benefit regardless of who gets hurt in the process. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. This website is set up so that, at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught seeking help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility. Call 911 or call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline by simply dialing 988 in the United States. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you may be facing. If you are a member of the LGBTQ community and suffering from discrimination, depression, or are in need of any support, please contact the LGBT National Hotline at 1-888-843-4564 or go to lgbthotline.org. Thanks so much for letting me tell you this story. If you enjoyed it, subscribe on whatever platform you're on, hit like, rate us, or leave us a comment. You can check out our other show, Somewhere Sinister, on YouTube or anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, check out our merchandise at thisismonsters.com. The link is in the description. Thanks again, and be safe. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.